Wow, that was quite beautiful. Um, well, it's my pleasure now at this time to introduce to you our guest speaker for today, guest pastor. His name is Pastor Andrew, um, and uh, he is currently serving, Pastor Andrew Kim, he is currently serving as the assistant pastor at New Life Presbyterian Church in Orange County. He oversees the singles and worship ministries, and he grew up in Minnesota and graduated from uh, the West, uh, West Coast, uh, West, Westminster Seminary in, Cal, in California here in 2018. He was ordained in the PCA in 2019, and Pastor Andrew's hobbies include basketball play, and playing guitar. And uh, I look forward to playing basketball with him as well as hearing his message today. So let's welcome Pastor Andrew Kim. Pastor Jimmy, we'll play some time. <laughs> All right, good evening, Christ Central. Um, it's a joy and a privilege to be worshiping with you here this evening, and an even greater joy and privilege to be able to deliver God's word to you here today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, our passage tonight comes from Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. Uh, and if you don't have your Bibles, uh, I believe the verses should be uh, in, the, on, in the screen in front of you, but let's give our undivided attention to the preaching and the hearing of God's word. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. This is God's word. Well, Christ Central, probably like many of you, uh, this is actually my first in-person Good Friday service Actually, in three years, it's hard to believe it's been three years already. Uh, probably like your church, our church actually had to live stream and do virtual Good Friday service for the past two years. And so it's a joy and a privilege to be worshiping with you tonight, friends. But I actually want to begin our time here today with a question. <laughs> Why do we call today Good Friday? And what's the purpose of it? Why do we celebrate every single year on the exact same day, Good Friday? What's the purpose of this? You know, when I was growing up, and going to church, I always was a little bit confused and conflicted about what Good Friday was and what the point of it was because, you know, when I was a kid, I always thought that the point of Good Friday is to think about and to reflect on all the suffering and the pain and just the ridicule that Jesus had to endure for me. And I thought the purpose of Good Friday was to actually feel sad. And the point of Good Friday is to, you know, have this kind of somber and sorrowful attitude to mourn everything that Jesus had to endure for me. And, you know, I don't know if churches or people still do this now, but I remember every single Good Friday in youth group, our youth pastor, every single Good Friday would make us watch Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ every single Good Friday. And the assumption was every single year that if you weren't just, I mean, like bawling or just snots coming out of your nose and just weeping during the crucifixion scene, I think, I feel like that was our youth pastor's way of figuring out, okay, who's a Christian and who's not a Christian? And who's kind of weeping and bawling uncontrollably and who's just kind of, you know, watching the movie like, oh, this is kind of sad, I guess. But friends, the point was, when I was growing up, I always thought the purpose of Good Friday was to feel sad for Jesus, for me to mourn everything that he had to endure. 
But friends, what I want us to, us to consider tonight is this. Maybe that's not the entire picture and the whole point of what Good Friday is about. Maybe that's not the whole story. That friends, if you go through Passion Week this past week, if you go through Good Friday and all you get out of it is just you feel a little bit more sorry in your heart for Jesus, you feel a little bit more sorrowful for everything he had to endure, then friends, I think you may have missed the point. Because friends, it is true that Jesus did experience and he did lose a lot on Good Friday, don't get me wrong. But friends, I don't think Jesus wants us here tonight. I don't think he just wants us to feel sorry for him. But friends, I think Jesus wants us to rejoice here today. He wants us to find hope. He wants us to find comfort in everything that he ought to endure in order to bless us as his people. Because friends, what we'll see as we study this passage in Mark tonight is that, friends, everything that Jesus loses on this night, on Good Friday, everything that he loses on Calvary, friends, you and I gain. See, every curse that Jesus experiences here in this passage and suffers through on the cross, friends, by faith, you and I get to experience the opposite and the equivalent blessing that Jesus lost. And friends, that is why we call this day Good Friday. And so friends, there are three things that I want us to look at here tonight in our passage. Three things that Jesus himself experiences and loses that you and I get to gain. Now first, we'll see that through Jesus' judgment, we receive justification. Secondly, we'll see that through Jesus' abandonment by God, you and I actually get to receive intimacy from God. And the final thing that we'll see in our passage is that through Jesus' death, you and I get to receive life and, and live and enjoy life. And so those are the three things that we'll look at here, here tonight. And let's begin with the first point. Now, if you read verse 33 again with me, you know, Mark opens this passage, this crucifixion passage, and it, he says in verse 33 that when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, friends, just to give a little bit of context to this verse, back in Jesus' day, uh, Jesus' clock and the Jewish clock and calendar and day, it actually began at 6 a.m. And so when Mark tells us that it was dark and darkness fell on the land from the sixth to the ninth hour, essentially what he's telling us is that it was pitch black and dark from about noon to 3 p.m. Now, that's pretty a bit, it's kind of weird, a little bit unusual. But friends, for many of us, if we're honest, when we read passages like this, we don't really pay that much attention to verses and details like this. But friends, the reason that Mark tells us this and the reason it's so important is because he's not trying to just give us a weather report. But friends, if you didn't know, darkness in the Bible, it actually has profound significance. You know, theologically, darkness is not so much about what time of day it is or how bright it is outside or the weather report. But friends, darkness in the Bible is actually a sign of God's judgment. You know, for example, if you look in the Old Testament, if you read the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 10, verse 22, before God smites the Egyptians with his tenth and final plague, what God actually does is he brings a sign to the Egyptians. He gives them a sign and the Israelites saying, I'm about to curse these people. And the sign is in the form of the ninth plague. In Exodus 10, 22, that's this darkness that falls over the land for three days. And friends, what this darkness is, it's a picture and it's a sign that says the Egyptians, my enemies, they're condemned. They're under my curse. Now, friends, as we go back to the scene of Jesus' crucifixion, you would think that this scene where the Roman soldiers are nailing Jesus' hands and his feet to the cross, and all the Jews are literally spitting at Jesus and mocking him, saying, come down from the cross, save yourself if you saved all these other people, you would think that this supernatural darkness that comes in the middle of the day from noon to 3 p.m. would be God's sign of judgment upon the people who are crucifying Jesus and mocking him. And yet, friends, what's so unique about the crucifixion is that 
this darkness that falls over the land for three hours. It's not so much a sign about God's judgment over Jesus' enemies. But friends, it's a sign of God's judgment upon Jesus himself. That, friends, on the cross, Jesus received God's full condemnation and full displeasure and wrath, friends, for your sins and for mine. And, friends, the darkness that falls over the land in this scene, it's a picture and it's a sign that says, this man, my son, he is condemned. He is cursed. He is under my wrath. Now, friends, it's interesting because many commentators in this passage will note that this scene of Jesus' death and his crucifixion, it actually mirrors and it parallels the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in life in his baptism at the very beginning of Mark. Now, for example, in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, this is the scene of Jesus' baptism, and Mark tells us that in those days, Jesus came up from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now friends, do you see the parallels here in these two passages? See, in Jesus' baptism, the heavens and the skies open up, the Spirit descends on Jesus to anoint him with his presence, and God declares his favor over Jesus. And yet, friends, at Jesus' death, what happens is the heavens close. Instead of the Spirit staying with Jesus and anointing him, the only thing that falls upon Jesus in his death is darkness, silence, and God's judgment. And brothers and sisters, here's the point. Friends, I don't know where you are in your life, your spirituality, if you know Jesus or not, but friends, if you're a believer here today, because Jesus has endured this, this curse of darkness and the weight of God's judgment, friends, what that means is that you and I will never be, be liable to the condemnation that our sins deserve. Friends, we have been completely freed from that because Jesus drank that cup of wrath on our behalf. And friends, what you and I get to receive is what Jesus received in his baptism. We receive the gift of heaven. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and God declaring over us, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. And I'm well pleased with you. With you, I am well pleased. Friends, that is the blessing of justification that we receive through Jesus' judgment on Good Friday. Now, friends, before we move on to our second point, what does this mean practically for our lives? Because I'm sure for many of you, if you've gone to church for a long time, you know what this is. You know what justification means. You know what it is. You've heard it preached in sermons all the time. But friends, if this is new to you, I'm, I am glad that you're here here tonight. I'm glad that you're hearing the gospel. But friends, what does this mean practically for your life, that you are now justified? What does it mean that God is well pleased with you? Well, friends, for one, it means this. It means you no longer have to strive or fight for approval or significance in your life, whether it's from people or from God. Now, I think for many of us growing up in you know, Asian-American contexts or families, if we're honest, friends, a lot of us, we crave and desire approval and validation that we may not have gotten when we were younger or even still now in our lives. You know, we crave that from our parents or our peers or people around us. And friends, what the gospel tells us here tonight is, friends, you are now free in Jesus, to live in the acceptance and the approval that he has won for you on the cross. You know, Andy Crouch, he's a, he's a Christian author. He wrote this book entitled Unchristian. And in Andy Crouch's book, Unchristian, uh, he once said this. He said, as for Christians, well, we really have just one thing going for us. We publicly declared that we are desperately in need of another. 
to give us his righteousness, to complete us, to live in us. We have publicly and flagrantly abandoned the project of self-justification that is at the heart of every person's compulsion to manage perceptions. Now, friends, basically what Andy Crouch is saying is this. Friends, no matter who you are, whether you're a Christian here today or a non-Christian, you're a skeptic or an atheist or agnostic, friends, no matter who you are, all of us, we crave and we desire justification. In other words, friends, we as human beings, we're wired to long for and to strive for acceptance and belonging and validation and approval. But see, friends, the way that the world tells you that you can get that approval is through self-justification. In other words, friends, if you want acceptance and validation from people or if you want it from God, you have to earn it. You have to give off this perception or prove to them that you're a somebody or that you deserve it. And that's going to happen either through your accomplishments and how successful you are, your education, your morality and your religiosity and your works, or maybe it's your personality and how much people like you or how charismatic you are. But friends, that's the way that the world tells us that we're going to get the approval that, friends, all of us desperately want. Friends, Christianity is the one religion and the one worldview that tells you that justification and acceptance, friends, it's not something that you can earn or work up to. It's not something that you have to prove to other people. But friends, Christianity is the one worldview that will tell you it's something that has to be given to you. Friends, it's something that you have to receive. That friends, no matter how much money you earn, how successful or educated you are, how much personality and charisma you may have, or how religious you are and how much you serve in church, friends, none of those things are going to give you the validation and the acceptance and the approval that your heart desperately craves. Because friends, that approval and that acceptance, it can only be found in one place. Friends, that's where we are here tonight, at the cross of Calvary, where Jesus shed his blood and gave up his perfect, sinless, righteous life for you. So that, friends, when the Father sees you, when God sees you and looks at you, he could say, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, and with you I, have, I am well pleased. You don't have to strive. You don't have to fight and long for this anymore because I'm freely giving it to you here today. And friends, that is the blessing of justification that we get to receive because, friends, Jesus was judged on our behalf. And this leads us to our second point. Secondly, in this passage, we see through Jesus' abandonment, you and I get to receive intimacy with God. And if you read verse 34 again with me in this passage, verse 34 tells us, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, friends, the second thing that Jesus experiences here on the cross is he's forsaken by God. You know, friends, as much as, you know, I think we focus, especially on Good Friday, as much as we focus on all the, the physical and the human dimensions of Jesus' suffering, you know, in the crucifixion, I would actually argue that the greatest pain and suffering that Jesus experienced wasn't actually the physical pain that he experienced or the rejection or humiliation by people, but it was actually in this verse here when God the Father forsook and abandoned him. Now, friends, how do we know this? Well, friends, if you've ever read Mark's gospel before, if you read through it again, what you'll notice is that Jesus was rejected, humiliated, and abandoned by people his entire life. Now, if you remember, when he went back to visit his hometown in Nazareth, he went back to visit as a prophet, as a great Messiah, and everyone in the town rejected him. You remember one of his 12 disciples, Judas, he was the one that betrayed Jesus into the hands of the Jewish leaders. The man in his inner circle, Peter, one of his closest confidants, he denied him three times, as John tells us, in the room right next to Jesus when Jesus was being interrogated by the Pharisees. And friends, even the Jews, Jesus' own people, 
We're supposed to be on his side. They mocked him. They humiliated him. And they were the ones that demanded for his crucifixion. And yet, friends, what we see in all those experiences, Jesus remained calm, cool, and collected most of those experiences. Sometimes he even remained silent. He just took it. And yet, friends, in this rejection and this abandonment by his heavenly father, it caused Jesus so much pain and agony that for the first time, he finally cried out in Mark's gospel with a loud voice saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, why have you abandoned me and why have you forgotten me? Because, friends, for the first time, Jesus, who in all eternity and before the foundation of the world had a perfect, intimate, Trinitarian relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, friends, for the first time on the cross, Jesus didn't have that. He was fully rejected and completely cut off from his relationship with the Father. And friends, because Jesus suffered and experienced that level of loss of intimacy and that level of loss of relationship, friends, what that means is by faith, that same intimacy that Jesus had with the Father in all eternity, friends, that's now made available to you and me. We now get a taste of that. And friends, how do we know this? Well, if you read down to verse 38 of our passage, Mark tells us in verse 38 that as Jesus died, what happened was the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, friends, again, as you're just kind of reading this, this might seem like a really random detail for Mark to include in our passage about the crucifixion, but friends, the tearing of the temple curtain, it actually has profound meaning. Because friends, if you remember back in the Old Testament, the curtain of the temple, it essentially served as this barrier to block the main part of the temple from this smaller section of the temple called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, that's where God's presence dwelt. That's where only once a year the high priest was able to, was, he was the only person that could go in and he could make sacrifice for the sin of the people. But friends, what the curtain represented was essentially this barrier between God who is holy and people who are sinful. And friends, the beautiful thing about Jesus' crucifixion is that as Jesus dies, as he breathes his last breath, what he does with his last breath is he tears the curtain of this temple in two from top to bottom completely, meaning, friends, that this, this barrier that once existed between us and God, ever since the fall, Jesus is now removed, and he's ripped it in half. And friends, as a result, you and I, we now have unrestricted access to the Father, unlimited access to God. And friends, just stop and think about that for a moment. Right now, if you were a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, friends, what that means is that you have unfettered and unlimited access to the God of the universe, the God who created everything you see around you here today. Every person you've seen around you, everything that's around you, you have access to that God. Friends, you can turn to him. You can pray to him. You can cry out to him in your moments of suffering and your moments of pain, knowing that he's never going to forsake you or abandon you. His presence is never going to leave you because, friends, he abandoned Jesus, his own son on the cross, for you. Friends, that's the level of intimacy that we've been given here. But, you know, friends, as great a truth as that is, if you and I are just really honest here today, even for myself, I'll be honest, we don't always experience this level of intimacy with God, do we? And friends, more often than not, I think the reason that we fail to experience the level of intimacy and the depth of intimacy that Christ has made possible for us, it's not because God's heart and his grace is too weak or it's lacking or deficient. But friends, the reason that we don't always experience this is because Friends, a lot of the time, our view of God's heart for us and his grace for us is just way too small. You know, Dane Ortland, 
in his book, Gentle and Lonely, which if you haven't read this book yet, I highly, highly recommend you read this book. After reading it, I can honestly say I think it's one of my favorite Christian books of all time. But Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lonely, he once wrote this talking about why we don't always experience intimacy with God. And in the book, he says this. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. You know, friends, maybe right now in your life, the reason you don't have intimacy with God is because you're apathetic towards him, because you feel like he's apathetic towards you, because your life maybe has been difficult recently, there's been relational conflict, finances have been tight, your health or maybe the health of a loved one has been struggling or declining or suffering. And friends, because of all that, you just feel like God has forgotten you. Where are you, God? What are you doing in my life? You feel like he doesn't really care about you, and so why would you turn to him? Friends, maybe for others of you here today, you may feel ashamed or you may feel guilty when you just think about God because of the things that you've done in your life or the things that you're doing now or how you're living your life currently. And friends, maybe you feel like God's given up on me because if God really is omniscient, if he really does see and know everything, the harsh or slanderous words that I speak about someone when I gossip, the things that I do in private or secret or look at on the internet, the twisted and the sinful thoughts that I have in my mind, if God really does know and see all that, then he probably wants nothing to do with me. And so why would I turn to him? Why would I try to have intimacy with God? Friends, the thing is this. When you and I do that, when we withdraw from God because of our circumstances, or when we withdraw with God, from God because of our sins, friends, if you think about it, essentially what we're doing is this. We're manufacturing, and we're actually redraping our own personal curtains between us and God. That's what we're doing. We're recreating this barrier that separates us from God and his intimacy and the access that we have. Friends, this barrier that Jesus gave his life to literally tear in two. And so friends, here today, if you want to begin to experience this access and this intimacy that, with the Father that Jesus has made possible for you, well, friends, it begins first and foremost by allowing your view of God and his heart for you and his grace towards you by allowing your view of that to be shaped not by your circumstances, which can go up and down and fluctuate so much, not by your sins, which constantly condemn you and say, God is giving up on you. You can never turn to him. Why would he ever bring you in again? But friends, you need to allow your view of God and his grace and his heart for you to be shaped in what he's shown you, in the grace of the gospel that he's given you in Jesus. Friends, by seeing the lengths and the depths that God would go to draw you to himself, to chase after you, and to draw you into him. That, friends, he would forsake and he would abandon even his own son upon the cross so that through Jesus' abandonment, friends, you and I could experience the intimacy and the comfort of the Father. Friends, that we could cry out, that we could say, unlike Jesus, my God, my God, why do you never forsake me? Why don't you give up on me? After everything that I've done, why are you still so faithful to me? Why are you so good? Friends, that is the level of intimacy and access that we have been given to God through Jesus' abandonment. This brings us to our last point. Friends, the third thing we see in this passage is that through Jesus' death, you and I receive life. If you read towards the end of our passage in verse 37, 
Mark tells us in verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And friends, the third and final thing that Jesus experiences on Good Friday, after his judgment, after abandonment from God, is death. And friends, it's through Jesus' death that you and I here today can actually begin to experience and live life and have life. And friends, again, this is something that I know many of us, we're familiar with. If you've grown up in church, you know this already. This is, this is John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But friends, what I want to remind you of here tonight is this. You know, so often, I think as Christians, you and I, we like to think of eternal life, with this, this life that Jesus gives us, we like to think of it only in terms of the quantity of our lives. In other words, friends, meaning that because of Jesus, I'm going to live forever in eternity. That's eternal life. Friends, which is true. But friends, did you know that when the Bible talks about eternal life, it's not only referring to the quantity of your life, the length of your life, but it's also talking about the quality. Now, for example, in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 10, as Jesus is giving his famous good shepherd discourse, he says in John, chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal, steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, friends, when Jesus says that he came to give us abundant life, he's not so much talking about giving us a longer life, a life that lasts really long for eternity, but, friends, he's talking about giving us a greater life, a fuller life, a complete life. In other words, friends, what he's talking about is a life no longer enslaved to sin and idolatry. He's talking about giving us a life no longer defined by my accomplishments or my success, a life that's no longer solely lived, friends, for ourselves, but a life that's lived for a greater purpose and a greater kingdom that we've been given. Friends, in other words, eternal life that Jesus gives you in the gospel through his death, eternal life is not some far-off promise that you're going to experience one day in the clouds in heaven, but friends, it's a reality that you and I get to experience now each day as we walk with Jesus. You know, friends, for many of us, if we're honest, this might be your experience, this might be your story right now. You grew up in church, one day you realized and recognized by God's grace your need for a savior, and so you repented, you turned to Jesus, you accepted him, and for a moment and for a season in your life, it could have been a really long season, but friends, for a moment or season, it really felt like your relationship with Jesus was actually making a difference in your life that it was actually making some sort of change. You could see it in the way that you lived, the decisions that you made, the people that you invested in, the things that you did with your time. But friends, slowly over time, maybe what happened was that the difference in the impact of the gospel that it had in your life, it slowly started to have less and less impact. And friends, rather than seeing more and more change and more growth in your life, you feel like recently you've just barely been trying to stay Christian. <laughs> friends, you've lost passion, motivation, and joy to pursue Jesus and you've become distracted by the idols of your heart, and you realize you're living just like the rest of the people around you in this world. You're living for comfort or money or success or power or romance to fulfill you and to satisfy you in your life. And friends, if that's you here today, you know, sometimes the greatest thing that we need is to hear the reminder that, friends, on the cross, Jesus did die to give you eternal life, abundant life. And friends, what that means is on the cross, Jesus did not just die to set you, pre, set you free from the power of death, but friends, he died to set you free from the power of sin, from the idols that continue to enslave your life. 
You know, friends, when I was in seminary, I heard this story once from a classmate about how animal tamers would train elephants in the circus in East Asia. And my friend told me that when the elephants are just really small babies, I don't know what you call a baby elephant, but when they're small babies, what the circus trainers would do was they'd tie this rope around one of the elephant's legs. They would connect that rope to this pole on the ground. And because the elephant's, you know, it's kind of still small, it's kind of weak, it's not strong enough to break free from that pole or from that rope, and so it's trapped. No matter how hard it tries, it can't break free, and so eventually it just stops resisting because it knows it's pointless. But friends, the thing is, when the elephants grow up and they're like eight times the size that they are when they were babies, the elephant is clearly and obviously is strong and powerful enough and big enough to just snap the rope immediately and break that pole and bring it out of the ground. But friends, that same, even though that same exact pole is used to tie the elephant, the elephant's been conditioned its entire life to believe that it can't break free. And so even when it's fully grown, even when it's an adult, it never resists, never even tries. Even though it's that same small rope and that same small, small pole, even though it has the strength to. You know, friends, sometimes, I think that's a picture of how many of us go through the Christian life. You know, as Christians, sometimes we, we still live as though we're shackled and we're in bondage to the same idols that once ruled our lives at one point. And we keep turning and we keep looking to them over and over and over again because we've been so conditioned to believe that they're what's going to give us the abundant life that we crave and need. That, friends, wealth or security or power or money or sex or a spouse, that's what's going to give me the abundant life that I want and crave. And, friends, we've forgotten that in the gospel, that Christ has set us free, not just from the power of death, Friends, he has set us free from the slavery and the tyranny and the bondage of our idols that once ruled our hearts. Friends, that Jesus died not so that we can continue living our lives for ourselves and for our idolatry, but friends, he died so that we might live our lives abundantly and fully and for him. And so Christ Central, as we come to a close, I pray that as we continue to worship here tonight, on this Good Friday, reflecting upon the suffering that Jesus had to endure on our behalf. Friends, I pray that our hearts here tonight would respond and be filled with gratitude and joy and a renewed and a deeper desire to follow after this Savior who is willing to go to the cross for us, who is obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. And friends, that we'd be reminded here today, as the prophet Isaiah says, as we look upon every wound that Jesus experienced, that we would know we've been healed through that. But friends, as we look upon every curse that Jesus had to endure, that we would know in our hearts that we have been blessed beyond all measure. Would you join with me in prayer? Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you so much here tonight. Lord, for your grace. Lord, we thank you, Jesus. For your love for us, God, that you were willing to come down from the heights of heaven, not just to come to this earth, Lord, but to come as a servant, or to come as a servant who became obedient even to the point of dying for broken and sinful and weak people like us. Jesus, we thank you that on the cross, as difficult as it is for us to even fathom, Lord, that you would receive judgment, that you would be abandoned, that you would die. Lord, so that we could receive justification, so that we could have an intimate relationship with the Father, and Lord, that we could have life and have it abundantly here today. So Father, I pray that as we continue to reflect 
upon Jesus' grace and his mercy for us, Lord, that you would fill our hearts, Lord, with your spirit and with joy and gratitude, and that you would help us, Lord, to continue to chase after and seek after, Lord, our Savior who has given himself up for us. We thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.